welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. All right, friends, if you want to make your way back to your seats, that would be great. Uh, are there any Packer fans in the house? Whoa, okay, a couple of you. All right, well, good luck today. May the force be with you. Um, my name's Micah. If we have not met, I'm one of the pastors here at Awaken. So glad to be here with you. And I just want to give you a heads up this morning. We're in Galatians. We'll get there in a minute. But uh, we've saved most of the music for last. And we saved, I think, the best song for last. So if nothing else, you have that to look forward to. I think it's going to be good. Um, Hey, I've been doing this 10 years as the pastor at Awaken, and I realized this morning, never have I had a situation where I was, like, in danger of not making it to church, you know, like a, an emergency or something. I got a flat tire this morning, you guys. I go, I usually come to church early and then go up to Brugger's Bagels and get a bagel and, and then practice my sermon in the car. There are passerbys who are kind of locals and, and you know, regulars at, at Brugger's. I think they're on to me at this point now. They're like, what is that guy doing? He's like going at it in the car, and there's nobody there. He doesn't have a headset in. He's got to be a pastor. Uh, but I, So I got, I got back into my car to come back to church, flat tire. So my car is in a parking lot behind Grand Ole Creamery. But the beauty of the church, friends, is every Sunday, the whole world is gathered. There's plumbers, there's electricians, there's lawyers, there's teachers, there's mechanics. Somebody came up after first hour, and they're like, can I, change, can I go change the tire on your car? Isn't that great? Man, you, you sacrifice a few things about being a pastor, but that's a real bonus right there. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians. It is the second Sunday of Epiphany. If you did not know that, we're in the second chapter of the church calendar. It begins with Advent and then moves to Epiphany, where we celebrate the light of God, which has come into the world at Christmas. Epiphany, in my opinion, asks us to uh, think about some of the more important implications of this New Testament story. You know, the, the fact that God has made God's dwelling among us as Emmanuel, that's a big deal. Uh, the fact that the people of God are now constituted not in Torah observance or ethnic identity, but in this, as we'll, we'll talk about more, this multi-ethnic family of God in faith or by faith. And the Spirit of God, which is uh, upon Christ's ascension at Pentecost, is given to the church to empower and enable it to do and be what it's called to do and be. So these, uh, a number, and a number of other themes are what Paul works out in Galatians, and that is the series we are in. Just for a little bit of review, we're just two weeks into this now. This is week three. The first week was a bit of an introduction. We talked about how Galatians can be broken up into three different sections. Chapters one and two, Paul really works out like his authority as, a, as an apostle is being challenged. Um, no pastor's ever had that happen to them where their authority or their voice was challenged. Thank the Lord. So he's like, listen, I'm saying these things for these reasons, and what I'm saying to you is the gospel. So his, 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 his sort of pitch in the beginning is like, what is the gospel of Jesus? Or what is the gospel? What is the good news? And then in the next section, he moves into the implications of that gospel, which is this new multi-ethnic family of God, no longer defined by Israel or circumcision or any number of other things, but by faith in Christ and by the faithfulness of Christ. And then in chapters 5 and 6, he talks about what is that group of people empowered and enabled by the Spirit of God? What does the fruit of that kind of life look like? So that's kind of Galatians in a nutshell. Last week, my good friend Scott, I sure hope you loved him. Um, I do. He uh, shared, don't skip the, the intro in, in Galatians 1, the first couple verses. Paul has this interesting 
uh, sort of template, if you will, for measuring and weighing ideas and teachings, whether they be new to you or they be old to you. And you're trying to discern, like, can I leave that behind and still, like, follow this Jesus? Because that doesn't seem to be life-giving. It doesn't seem to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Can we do that? So uh, that was lovely. And this week we're in chapter 1, verses 6 to 10, and I'm entitling this message, Adding to the Gospel. So if you have a Bible, turn there. If you can, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of the word. Paul writes this, starting in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach... Uh, preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you've accepted, let them be condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or God? No. Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul goes on in the rest of chapter 1 to sort of defend himself and uh, what he's been saying. But pray with me and we'll jump in here. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather in your name. Uh, thank you for this church and the fruit that has been born of it. Love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Um, thank you for the lives of the people who call this place home and all the ways in which you are working. So now as we turn our attention to your words that have been preserved and given to us as a gift, um, I pray that you would do again what you always do. Reveal yourself to us through it. Speak through it. Uh, embody it, flesh it, enact it, make it alive to us today, I pray, for a, a fresh word for the church in 2020. And all God's people said, with joy in their hearts, amen, amen. May, you may be seated. I'm assuming you have joy in your heart. If you don't, that's okay too. Um, I was on a plane a couple of weeks ago on my way home from San Diego. <laughs> so, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. <laughs> I think that means St. Diego. Uh, I was on, <laughs> on my way home from San Diego, and I was on a plane, and I was, I was, I was traveling with Delta and not Spirit because somebody else paid for it, which is great. And that brought with it the added bonus of in-flight entertainment. Man, is it just, is it the world we live in? It's a wild one, isn't it? You know, it, like it's not enough that you're 30,000 feet in the air flying through the air at, you know, hundreds of miles an hour in a metal tube. But now you can watch TV and text your friends too. So I was doing that, and I found a couple of good shows to watch. Uh, one of them was, I like documentaries, and so uh, I was watching one called uh, Agave, the Spirit of a Nation. It was like about tequila and how they make it, and the humidors, and this like, this really ancient art uh, that is in some parts being lost, but it was so cool. And then I, I just kept the theme going. I found one on scotch. Uh, so I watched one on scotch whiskey. And that one was called The Golden Dram. And if you have Netflix, I highly recommend it. I'll share a little bit about that one. Um, it's centered around this guy named Jim McEwen, who, if you know anything about scotch or the world of scotch, like if you're in the world of scotch, you know this guy. He's like the grand poobah of the scotch whiskey world. And he was talking about the process of distilling whiskey and how whiskey... And distil distillation is the process of reducing something down to its most elemental form. So he's in the grain room where they crush all the grain, and he's holding the grain, and he starts to name all the things that he smells. And he's like, if we do it right, 
all of these will be preserved. All these smells and these tastes and these notes and these flavors, if we do it right, it'll all be concentrated into the final glass of whiskey in your hand. So distilling whiskey isn't about adding things in order to create something. It's about reducing something down to its purest form. They call it the heart of the run, where the, the distiller is looking for like the heart of the grain that, that is grown in that region. And when they find it, that's what they're trying to get. So there's this moment in the movie when he's, um, he's talking about, uh, somebody called him, this guy like traveled the world, and he could, he could do anything he wanted in Scotch. He was making as much money as he'd ever want to, but he wasn't with his family, and he grew up on Isla, the, the region, the island just off of Scotland, where lots of famous Scotches are made, and he, his wife had never lived there, and he didn't see his kids, and like, would you like to own and try to resurrect this like defunct distillery called Brook Lottie? And he's like, yes. So he takes this job, part, like hat in hand, and he goes there, and he's telling a story about like trying to resurrect this defunct and derelict distillery, and they had just like distilled their first batch of whiskey, and uh, they're all gathered around, and distilling is this beautiful mixture of like science, where there are all these gadgets and you know things, temperature gauges and whatnot, and then art where when, when it matters the most, they sort of like put all the gadgets and instruments aside and the master distiller just stands there with a cup and puts it underneath the distillation process as it's coming out. And he or she is like smelling it and tasting it and they put water in it and swirl it and when it goes clear and they all, and, and, and then there's this moment where it's like, that's it, that's the heart right there. And then they like put the sucker in the, in the barrels, right? But it's, it's, it's all art, it's all feel, it's touch, it's like smelling and tasting. So he's telling the story, he's gathered around with all these distillery workers who have been fired and rehired and fired and rehired. Multiple times this thing's tried to get off the ground and nobody's been able to do it. And they're all gathered around and they're waiting for Brook Lottie to breathe again, to live again, you know, to be resurrected. And the second distillation comes and he puts his glass under and he's smelling and he's waiting and he's tasting like, Minutes go by, 10, 15, 45 minutes go by, and, and you could just see, like, the looks on these guys' faces as they were, like, hoping that it might happen. And they're just, like, getting lower and lower and lower, and then this moment where he's like, and there it was. And his eyes light up, and he's like, the heart of Brook Lottie, you know, this great Scottish accent. He, and he, he, he tells the story, and he's like, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for, like, high fives and everybody to be excited, and he's met with silence, and they pass the glass around, and all these, like, grizzled distillery workers start to like taste the shadows of what this distillery had been and like there it is in a glass and he said like the, he could see the Adam's apples start to quiver and like tears start to run down these guys I am like as he's telling a story I am crying on the plane like listening to it it was so beautiful right like this this not only this resurrection story but this idea of whiskey he says like it it's uh it's the reduction of grain to its purest form like all the things that are present there, but it's reduced down to this, like, elemental thing. And I want to actually suggest, wait for it, Galatians is a bit like this. Ha-ha! Ha-ha-ha-ha! You didn't think I could do it, did you? But Paul is arguing that the heart of the gospel is this thing, right? That it's not all these things you're trying to add to it, but the heart of the run, the heart of the matter, is Christ and Christ crucified and resurrected. That is the gospel, and that's what he's arguing for in this book. If you remember from a few weeks ago, the problem is that there are people who are trying to add to it, right? Paul comes around, and he goes to these towns in this region of, called Galatia, and he begins to teach, and he preach, and he says, like, this is the heart of the gospel. It's, the, it's Christ, Jesus, the man that you've heard of, 
crucified and then resurrected and inviting all of humanity to now respond to and be in relationship with God by faith. That's the heart of the gospel. And then there are these Judaizers who come behind him. And they, of course, are their ethnic and religious Jews. If you know anything about the story, for thousands of years, they've been marked and set apart in, in the ancient world by circumcision and by dietary laws and by certain things, uh, ways that they celebrated the calendar and the festivals and the holidays. And so these good Jewish ethnic folks come by and they say, yeah, okay, Gentiles who you haven't been circumcised and don't eat kosher, it's Christ and Christ crucified, but it's also these things. And so they're adding to the requirements of the gospel. And Paul is not having any of it. So this is what he says in verse 6. I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. And you're turning to a different gospel. Here's why this is important. And stick with me, this is a little technical. We are like now into the heart and soul, the, like the guts of what is the Christian story theologically, okay? Paul is essentially arguing that in their addition to the gospel, the good news, this is a Greek word, euangelion, it's where we get evangelism. He's saying, as these people are adding to the good news, the, the gospel, they're fundamentally changing the constitution of the gospel, so he's saying the gospel is this. And as these people are adding to it, they're changing the fundamental nature of it and what makes it good news. Does that make sense? Uh, there are two words that are important in Paul. Uh, he talks about them all the time. Paul loves the metaphor of like law court where you know, someone might be guilty of a crime and something has happened in this law court. He uses this metaphor. And these two words are justification and righteousness. They're two Greek words. They come from the same root word, but here they are on the screen above me. Justification is this Greek word here, and I'm not a Greek scholar, so I won't try to pronounce that. But it's the act of pronouncing righteous or acquittal, justifying, justification, or absolution, right? I watched another show on the plane about a guy who was wrongly accused of a crime that he did not commit and then was incarcerated for seven years, lost a scholarship to USC. He, it's a true story. He ended up actually playing a game for the Atlanta Falcons later on. But he was absolved. He was acquitted of that, right? He was justified at some point down the road. That's what this word is talking about. So it's when someone is, uh, the, the act of pronouncing someone justified or in the right. The word righteousness is similar in that it's correct or righteous by implication, innocent. So Paul's always talking about justification and righteousness. And he's essentially saying that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is the means by which you now stand before God justified or reconciled or righteous, meaning that there is no conflict between you and the divine. Why? Because Christ has satisfied, fulfilled the law and the requirements of the law, and now by faith, you experience the right relationship of Christ on your behalf. So justification and righteousness. What he's saying is, when you come along and you add to that more requirements, what these Judaizers were doing, it moves beyond faith in Christ, and now your justification or your righteousness, your right standing with God, is tethered to your observance to Torah, or your, whether or not you're in church on Sunday, or if you eat kosher, or if you celebrate the holidays and the festivals. And Paul is saying, that is not good news. That's no gospel at all. 
Why? Because no one can satisfy the requirements of the law. That's the whole point. I know this isn't interesting to you all, but he takes two chapters in Romans to, to talk about this and why this is so important. Basically, he's saying, listen, gang, insofar as we are uh, in broken relationship with God, if that's true, like there is conflict between us and God, and there's conflict between us and each other, and there's conflict between us and the world that we live in. If that's true, what is the means by which, what's the mechanism, what's the way we enter into right relationship? That's the question that's being asked. That's the question that's being answered. Now, the law served a purpose, Paul says. Yes, absolutely. The Mosaic law, the Torah, it served a purpose. Two purposes, really. The first of which is it shines a light. It's a mirror. And the law essentially reflects back to you the fact that you can't do it, which is why the sacrificial system was enacted. So the law shines a light and says you're out of relationship with God. You produce these sacrifices in temple, and you're now in right standing with God, and then you, it's this cycle. And, and Paul even says it, just, it, it, had, it has to keep going unless, according to the author of Hebrews, we have a perfect high priest who offers a perfect sacrifice once and for all. Ha-ha! So the law is like a mirror. It reflects back to us our need for grace. But then secondly, in some ways, the law was like a strict, you know, elementary school teacher. You know, like, here's the straight and narrow. Stay on this path and you won't hurt each other as bad. Right? Galatians 3.24, he says, So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. So his whole argument here is that the law was good and it had a purpose, but it was fulfilled in Christ. So to now go back and try to satisfy the requirements of the law, he's like, that's not good news, because you can't do it. And if you try to, it's as if Christ never even was crucified in the first place. Are you tracking with that argument that he makes? So that's why he's so bent out of shape. He's like, for crying out loud, people, goodness gracious, Easter has come, it's happened. Christ has been crucified and resurrected. So why are you acting as if he hasn't? I would suggest that so much of Christian religious life is wasted by you and I, still in 2020, trying to fulfill requirements that we add to the gospel. Right? All the ways in which we think if we do this, or we don't do that, or if we don't do that, or we do th right? We think our holiness or our position before God might be altered by our behavior. That's not good news. Because that is a rat race you cannot win. I cannot win. At my worst, friends, it's awful. Would you like to tell me about it? No, none of us do, right? We're all the same. But good news. Paul and the gospel writers are saying, good news. Christ has come. Christ has been crucified and has been resurrected. And essentially says, you get what's mine by faith. I was faithful to the call, and now by faith you enter in and you get what's mine. That's good news. So stop acting as if Christ didn't die. Stop acting as if he wasn't resurrected by trying to adhere to all the laws and all the rules and all the holiness codes and all the ways that we measure each other up and we say, if you do this, well, nah, right? It's a, it's a zero-sum game and nobody wins. Everybody loses. Who wants that? Praise the Lord. How about some donuts? So, yeah, a reminder this morning that, like, that game, it's just boring, and nobody wins in the end. So receive the gift. Like, live from it. Friends, I need eyes. 
eyes, you're free. In Christ, there is no condemnation for those. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You're free. You don't have to be afraid anymore. You can just love as hard and as, like, deeply and as, like, pat, like, yeah! Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? And, and, and like, let the, let the rest. God, if God's up there, God doesn't need you to, like, determine, like, he doesn't need your help. You know what I mean? Like, judging and running around. Hey, that's it! Okay, you get what I'm saying? All right, good. Now, in the time that I have left, I, I want to I turn a little bit, and I want to I explore a, a little more nuanced reading of this passage that I think is really important for us in 2020, especially as being the church that we are. Uh, it is Martin Luther King weekend, if you did not know that. Um, Martin Luther King Day is tomorrow, the 20th of January. And I have thought at great length as to what I, the white male pastor, should say to this church, a majority white congregation. And in doing so, I have heard at least two voices of my friends in the covenant. The first is a white pastor on the south side of Chicago. His name is David Swanson. He is releasing a book that I'm very excited about called Rediscipling the White Church. He said this on the socials this weekend. He said, quote, white pastors... If you've not been compelled to tell your people that black lives matter, then it's probably best that you keep the good Reverend Dr. King's name out of your mouth this Sunday. Uh, yeah. While I wouldn't put myself in that category of never talking about this, nor engaging you and trying to offer teaching and discipleship around this conversation, that is a good word. Uh, the second voice that I have heard as I've thought about what I might say is from my friend Dominique, who actually stood in this pulpit about a year ago, uh, wrote a book called Rethinking Incarceration. He said this, quote, We don't get to remember Dr. King on our own terms. The vast majority of citizens disapproved of his leadership during his lifetime. And, his, and when his prophetic leadership is highlighted today, it's usually sanitized. This protest, and he sh shared a, an example, this protest he led is a prime example. Over 500 protesters were arrested. Can you imagine how King would be slandered, rebuked, dismissed as anything but a minister of the gospel by many of the same people who will quote and pay homage to him on Monday if he were to lead such a protest in 2020? I think it's important that we remember that the words and the life and the action of this man were really sharp. And the prophets were not always saying the things that people wanted to hear. And even while he was alive, he was very divisive. And people, he made people choose. And sometimes when we talk about Dr. King, we do so on our terms and we, we whitewash it, right? We, we make it palatable. And I don't want to do that this morning. So I, I, instead of adding my unqualified voice to the cacophony of white pastors who will try with varying degrees of success to honor Dr. King... I'm going to actually begin and end with the same idea, and that is adding to the gospel. I want to reiterate a point that I've made previously in our series on values when I talked about justice, and it's this. The gospel is Christ crucified and resurrected, period. No ifs, ands, or buts about it, no additions, no, no uh, need for 
like caveats, like this is the good news, Christ and Christ crucified and resurrected. This gospel makes way for a newly constituted family of God that excludes no one, includes everyone, and is not based on ethnic, racial, or any other division or boundary that we can think up. This is what the gospel does. It's what it affords. It's what it catalyzes. Therefore, as a mostly white church, it demands that we, especially we white Christians, engage in honest, like, in interrogative, interrogatory, uh, like where we interrogate, uh, uh, it, it, it demands reflection and lament and repentance for the effects of and the presence of systemic and institutionalized racism, which the Church of Jesus Christ in America has been complicit in. I'm going to say that again. The good news is Christ crucified and resurrected. That good news engages, catalyzes, makes space for, creates a newly constituted people of God, which knows no ethnic boundary. Therefore, that demands from us, from me, as a white follower of Jesus, to be honest and to interrogate and to reflect and to lament and to ask for forgiveness about the presence of and the reality of institutional and systemic racism, which the American church... Jesus' followers have been complicit in and often were the perpetrators of. There was a document in 1969 that was released called the Black Manifesto, and it was offered by a group of African-American leaders in our country to mostly white, well, white institutions, including churches and synagogues. In it, they said, white churches and synagogues have been the moral cement of the structure of racism in this nation. That churches, white churches, have been the moral cement of the structure of racism in our country. Now, friends, while I've had my fair share of struggle with the denomination that we're a part of as of late, one of the reasons I love the covenant is the passion and tenacity with which we have engaged the conversation around race and justice related to race. I am as far along as I am because of covenanters, men and women who have challenged me and invited me and pushed me, often very uncomfortably, into this space of being honest and getting my head out of the sand and my eyes open to the reality that we now live in, in 2020. And I'm grateful to them. I owe them a great debt of gratitude. But in general, friends, as we look back on history, and I, I've been doing a lot of reading and research. There was just recently published an article about the covenant's response to this 1969 document and, and how our denomination responded. And then there were people who are still pastors now who are commenting on it. Fascinating. Uh, if you're interested in that, I, would, I will pass it on to you. Highly recommend it. But in my study of our history, like many ECC covenant pastors and churches really struggled to get on board in the 40s, 50s, and 60s with, in the midst of civil rights. It was a select few in the academy and a few pastors here and there who said, no, this is the work of the church. There are, there are folks on record saying, why should we, the church, scratch the itch of culture when we have clear instructions for the gospel. The implication being that race and justice related to race is a social issue and it's not a matter of the gospel. 
Now, what's fascinating to me is I've never heard a person of color say that. That race and justice related to race and, and how it's been lived out in our country is not a matter of the gospel. I've never heard a person of color say that. The only people I've ever heard say that were white folks who were in positions of privilege and power. Of course you can, of, of course I can say that. It's not true though. One author writes this, an African American theologian, Jarvis Williams says, white Christians generally think about the gospel in different ways than black and brown Christians. White Christians, especially white evangelicals, generally, usually limit the gospel to an announcement of how one becomes a Christian, asserting that then matters of poverty and racism are social issues instead of gospel issues. Black and brown Christians generally understand the gospel to be both vertical and horizontal, including an announcement of how one becomes a Christian, but also an announcement of how one lives in right relationship to one's neighbor. Awaken, take a deep breath. They say if you want to, like, quickly dissolve a church and shrink it, talk about this stuff. Here's the thing. I'm not afraid of losing my job. And I love you all as a church far too much to not challenge us and engage us as a mostly white congregation to think deeply and thoughtfully about the issue of race and justice related to it. So I want to challenge you this morning. Paul's letter to the Galatians, he's arguing that these people are adding to the gospel. That what they're asking of these Gentile Christians is beyond the scope of what Christ is asking of us. And therefore, it's not necessary. I have heard the same thing said about race and justice. That it's not a, it's not a gospel concern. And I just flat out disagree. I think that's a lie from the pit of hell, and it needs to be said out loud. It is not an addition to the gospel. It's, it's the heart of the run, people. If Christ has come to create a new multi-ethnic family of God where everybody, regardless of any gender, race, class distinction, is welcome at the table of communion, then for us, a church who has been explicitly and implicitly benefactors of the structural racism that, like, we have to engage that. If we don't, we're, we have, uh, I, I'm imploring you. I'm, 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 I'm asking you as your pastor, please, 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 open your eyes, educate yourself, read, find friends, repent, ask for forgiveness. Because any gospel that privileges one group of people at the expense of another is no gospel at all, if I can quote Paul. So what does that mean for us? Well, I don't know how you came here. I don't know how far along you are. I don't know if you're engaged at all. But as your pastor, I just find, like, I feel responsible. 
I'm 42 and I've been doing this 22 years and this has never been a part of like what I think Christian discipleship is about and I'm ashamed of that. And so the only thing I can do is to change that going forward. So that's what I'm, gonna, that's what I'm doing. And I want, I'd love for you to come with me. I'd love for you to be a church that's awake to the good news of the gospel as it relates to your relationship with your neighbor who may look different than you. Let me close with this quote. I'll invite you to a time of silence. And then we've picked some songs that I think will hopefully draw our hearts together. And my invitation to you is, insofar as you can, to like sing them from way down deep. If, like, if there's resonance in the, the words that are there, then let them come up from your toes through your whole body. Like feel it and let it come out as, a, as one church. That's my hope. Let me close with this quote. This is from Dr. King from a book called Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? One of his less popular books because it is pretty pointed. And I want you to listen to this quote and just ask yourself this one question. Is this still true? Of course, he died in 68. So I'm not good with math, but let's call that a good... 40 plus, 50 almost, is that 50? 50 years ago? Here it is. Why is equality so assiduously avoided? Why does white America delude itself, and how does it rationalize the evil it retains? The majority of white Americans consider themselves sincerely committed to justice for the Negro. They believe that American society is essentially hospitable to fair play and the steady growth toward a middle-class utopia embodying racial harmony. But unfortunately, this is a fantasy of self-deception and comfortable vanity. Overwhelmingly, America is still struggling with irresolution and contradictions. It has been sincere and even ardent in welcoming some change, but too quickly, apathy and disinterest rise to the surface when the next logical steps are to be taken. Laws are passed in a crisis mood after Birmingham or Selma, but no substantial fervor survives the formal signing of legislation. The recording of the law in itself is treated as the reality of the reform. My hope and prayer for you, for us as a community, is that these words of irresolution, struggling with contradiction, even ardent in welcoming some change, self-deception, comfortable vanity, that these would decreasingly be true of us, of the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? So let me offer a word of prayer and a time of silence. We trust that the Holy Spirit is at work in our community. This is not the last word, this pulpit, if you can call this a pulpit. It's the first of a conversation. So you may disagree with me. You may have pushback for me. You may think I'm unfairly caricaturing something or characterizing something. That's fine. That is okay. That is welcome at Awaken. I don't have more access to God than you do. So I want you to weigh and measure what I'm saying to you. I want you to challenge it. And I want you to think deeply about it. And you may not agree with me. That's fine. But is any of that true? Is any of that still true? And if so, as a person who follows Jesus, if you consider yourself one, what does it mean to be 
the people of God, of the resurrected Christ in the world. Pray with me. God, I want to ask that in the next moment or two of silence, that by your Holy Spirit, you would be present, Emmanuel, that we would hear the words of the prophets. And hear the words of the prophets. The ancient Hebrew prophets who were saying some of the same things to the people of God Israel. We have these songs and these worship gatherings and yet the poor are being forgotten. And the gap is just increasing between those who have much and those who have little. And yet you call upon my name and wonder why I don't hear you. So Holy Spirit, would you visit us today as we quiet our hearts and invite you to turn on the lights. And so in whatever ways we personally and collectively are being asked and invited to move and to open our eyes and to engage and to become alive in you, I pray that, Spirit, you would have free reign to do your work. So come, Holy Spirit. To the church of Jesus, the resurrected Christ and Messiah, lived and loved a certain kind of way, you have been invited to go and do the same, empowered and enabled by the Spirit of God to be Christ in the world. So know that you have been blessed. The Lord blesses you and is keeping you. The Lord is lifting up his face upon you and shining. He's gracious to you. The Lord's countenance is being lifted to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit to go and be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. And the church said together, www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.